for that sincere prayer. That was, uh, that was refreshing. It was a good reminder of, of God's amazing grace, his faithfulness, um, especially in the times that we are, are weak um, and feeling like he's not there. That, that's gotta be a familiar feeling for, for all of us in here. Um, I'm excited to finally be able to, to preach this message. Um, I was supposed to preach this about three weeks ago. Uh, we are still in the, the, the series of um, Proverbs, the book of wisdom. I ended up getting sick. I decided to share my cashews with another brother um, on the elder team. And uh, he was really hungry and he was putting his hands all in my cashew bag. And um, two days later, yeah, I was in bed. Yeah, so thank God. <laughs> I've gained some wisdom from that. For now on, I will pour the cashews in your hand. <laughs> thank God for wisdom. Yeah, um, so yeah, I will be preaching from, from Proverbs 1, 7. Uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Um, fools despise wisdom and discipline. It is an understatement uh, to say that we need wisdom in this world that we live in today. To say that we need wisdom, <sighs> wisdom is like needing good air. The, the, the type of things that we deal with on a regular basis, the amount of sin that has consumed this world, um, if you look at the design, right, of, of this world and our bodies, we operate like an ecosystem, right? So the things of this world all operate together. The way our bodies have been designed, it all operates together. And when things go wrong in particular areas of our life, when things go wrong in particular aspects of the world, it penetrates and infiltrates everything, every other part. And we know this to be true. Personally, we know this to be true. We know that there's been times in our bodies where you, know, you, you, you injure a leg, and it begins to affect the way that you move and the way that you walk, and then it begins to affect your mood throughout the day because you're frustrated, because your leg is in pain every time you're having to navigate a different place. This is just the way that we're designed. And this brings about such challenge when it comes to being Christians, godly individuals in a broken, sinful world where God has called us to advance the gospel, where God has called us to be image bearers of Christ. It's hard to do that when you're suffering from ailments. It's hard to do that when you're frustrated in your marriage because you guys have these disagreements that you just can't get over. It's hard to do that when you're struggling with your finances. It's hard to do that when you're struggling with insecurities that are crushing your spirit. And our spirit is meant to be alive, alive and well and vibrant for people to see. But we're struggling. We have all these different forms of oppression that we experience. And these are the reasons why we need wisdom to navigate well. But not just any wisdom. And I want to highlight that today. I want to go over the points that I'm going to be preaching on from 1-7. Uh, 
The first point is when it comes to wisdom, this side of heaven, there are always two offers on the table, both of which are in opposition to one another. When it comes to wisdom, this side of heaven, there are always two options on the table, both of which are in opposition to one another. The second point is the fear of the Lord comes in two ways, two ways that stood out to me in the scriptures. One is through obedience to his word, and the other is with holy, counter, holy encounters with the Spirit of God. Obedience to his word and holy encounters with the Spirit of God. The last point that I want to make is that the fear of the Lord is cultivated through discipline. Foolish behavior avoids discipline and as a result rejects wisdom. And to reject wisdom is to suffer in vain. Uh, 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 something that I learned um, at the beginning of my time here at the Brook is, is that, that this side of heaven, suffering is, is Im- imminent. And suffering doesn't always necessarily need to be perceived as a bad thing. But suffering that, that, that leads to nothing, that leads to no fruit, that's not a good thing. That's not what God intended us to experience. So I'm going to read that point again. The fear of the Lord is cultivated through discipline. Foolish behavior avoids discipline. As a result, rejects wisdom. And the rejection of wisdom leads to suffering in vain. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and discipline. When reading this, we, we get this idea that that that. There's another option because it's identifying that if we place our fear with God, we are exposed and opened up to this this gateway or this door of, of knowledge and wisdom. But that also says to me that there's a possibility, there's another option that we could place our fear somewhere else, which could lead us to a different type of wisdom, a different type of of knowledge. And the concern with that, especially today where we're in this information age, knowledge and wisdom is being thrown out like candy. Just scroll scroll through your your, um, social media platforms if you have them. I know for me, man, I'm I'm, 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 I'm big on on knowledge and things that will, you know, I can learn that can help me get healthier and and more fit and, and mentally more sound. So when I'm scrolling through my feed, it's like I'm, I'm always getting all this, this, this good information. But as I, was, as I was studying this, man, the Lord began to just like really help me understand that there is no such thing as good information apart from God. Even if there's a truth to it, there's no such thing as good information apart from the fear of the Lord doesn't exist. And the enemy knows that, and he plays on that. Let's go back to the beginning, Genesis 3, verse 1 through 7. I'm reading from the CSB. It says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from the tree of the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you may not eat it, nor can you touch it, or you'll surely die. Satan responds, no, you'll certainly not die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then look at verse 6. It says, the woman saw that the tree was good for the delight and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of, the, of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And we know how the story goes. At that point, sin comes into the world, comes into our bodies, our hearts become desperately wicked. The ground is cursed. And we're cast out of the garden into an ecosystem, both in our bodies and in this world, where we are constantly oppressed by our own sin, sin of others, the wickedness and the sickness of this world, the things that we eat destroy our bodies, our minds, the things that we listen to, tarnish the way that we think, bring toxicity into our souls, crush our spirits, the things that are posted make us feel less than, not worthy, we devalue ourselves. These are the consequences of adhering to some insight from the enemy. This, this new wisdom, this wisdom that can add to our lives, this wisdom that could make things better. This is, something, this is something that we innately all seek. And the reason why we, in, we all seek it is because we're all struggling. Who doesn't want a better life? Who doesn't want to improve our business? Who doesn't want to improve our financial circumstances? Who doesn't want to be financially independent? Who doesn't want to not have to ask somebody to go on vacation? To do what we want to do when we want to do it. It's part of our nature. But it's that exact thing, it's that exact desire that Satan uses to thwart our vision, to thwart our sight moving from fearing God and seeing his magnificence and his power and his awesomeness and being obedient to him to looking to something else that seems more desirable at first glance. We know this. There's a holy God that is actively pursuing us, but there's also a cunning, deceitful enemy that is in pursuit around the clock. And whoever we fear takes center stage in our heart. Whoever we fear takes center stage in our heart. Whoever we look to for that guidance, for that advice at that moment, and we're starstruck, 
we become submissive. We begin to respect what we're looking at, what we're seeing. Whoever we do that for takes that center space. That translates into action, into execution. I want to read something. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 3, 18 through 20. It says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Since it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Sounds familiar. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. And I'll stop there. But worldly, a, 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 a distinction between God's wisdom and worldly wisdom is worldly wisdom always plays on your pleasure. Always. Worldly wisdom will always play on our pleasure. What pleases me? What makes me feel better? That's what makes marriage so hard. Because oftentimes in marriage, the argument is, well, I need this and I want to do this. And the other person is saying, well, I need this and I want to do that. And you're, you become in opposition to one another. And when you operate like that, based on your self-pleasure, you're operating on worldly wisdom. It is not the guidance of God. It's not godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says, I can, so why not? I can, I have the capability of doing it, why not? Especially if it makes me feel good. It, it, it reminds me of... of um, the story of King David and Bathsheba. King David was doing his thing at this time. God had blessed him with authority, power. He was ruling. And King David happened to be, I don't know, somewhere in his palace, maybe at the top, I'm assuming at the top of his palace, and he saw out afar a beautiful woman that was bathing. Her name was Bathsheba. And she clearly caught his eye. And he sent one of his messengers to go find out who she was. They came back and said, hey, this is, this is Bathsheba, so-and-so, daughter of so-and-so, and, -so, and he's, she's married to Uriah. At that time, Uriah was out fighting a war. So he says, tell her to come to me. Bathsheba comes, he sleeps with her, and then sends her back to her home. She sends a messenger back saying, I'm pregnant. Next thing you know, David is trying to figure out how to fix this problem. He gets crafty. So what he does is he calls Uriah from the battlefield, says, Uriah, sleep here, drink with me, eat with me, because his aim is to get him to go back to his wife and sleep with his wife. So. When he finds out that she's pregnant, he's not going to think anything of it. He's going to say, it's yours. The problem is, Uriah was faithful. Uriah was a man that believed in 
doing his duty, fighting for his, 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 his people. He's like, my soldiers, my, my fellow soldiers are out there risking their lives. How could I be here and you want me to be with my wife? I can't do this. So he just falls asleep outside his door and David is like, all right, this is not going to work. So he sends him back. It gets so wicked that David tells the commanders, I want you to advance, put Uriah in the front, and when we advance, pull back, except for Uriah, so that Uriah can be killed. David, in his craftiness, his wickedness, and this worldly wisdom he used, had Uriah murdered. Now, here's the thing. It's clear what David did was wrong. We know this. But I can assure you, no one thought, not even David from the beginning thought that he would end up plotting Uriah's murder. I want to read something that I wrote down. This is something that Jonathan said, um, he reminded us of Last, last, last sermon, he said, the ultimate suffering is a life apart from God. We know this. The ultimate suffering is a life apart from God. And this is what I took from it. But it starts off as a thought apart from God. I can assure you that when David saw Bathsheba at a distance, there was no consulting with the father in his mind and in his heart. In David's mind, he was full of pride and ego at that moment. I can, so why not? He knew that with his level of authority, not only will no one dare to say anything, but I can cover it up. So it started with a thought apart from God that led to an action apart from God, that led to a series of decisions apart from God, that ultimately leads to a life apart from God. That, that is the aim of the enemy when presenting this worldly wisdom. But who, who who would know that? Who would know that? It reminds me of the series of, of, you know, I can't remember the name of the series, but it was um, the, the idols we make. I think that's what it was called. The idols that we make. And it's like, man, I, the enemy has played this game with me so many times, and I've fallen into it so many times. But during a, a, a very difficult time in my life, I became aware that I just wasn't raised the best. I was lacking in so many areas. Mentally, I was lacking with, I didn't know what mental health meant. There was just so many things, how to eat right, and how it was affecting my body. I, there was just so much that I felt like I was, I was lacking. And, and, and that did something for me. It, it, it gave me this knowledge that began to kind of turn things around. But it also, it, also, it also caused me to begin to almost, okay, I got it figured out. And then I start taking things into my own hands. I start using this knowledge and this wisdom. I know how to do the research. Now what I know what to look for. Now I know what to be careful around, X, Y, and Z. And I just start, to, and I pray less. I consult less with, with my community, with people around me that are, that, that are wiser than me, that love the Lord. 
because I got it figured out. And then I begin to idolize. I idolize this way of living. I begin to idolize this new knowledge. Matthew 10, 16. Look, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. If we're not hyper aware of the schemes of the enemy, we'll fall into his trap every time. We need to understand and know the ways in which the enemy is playing on our desires. In our personal walks with God, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our businesses, in our communities, in our jobs. There is a tree of good and evil planted in everybody's backyard. Every single one of you in here, Satan knows exactly where to play on your pleasure. And if we're not hyper aware of how he's moving and what he's doing, we get caught up. Point two is the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and it comes in two ways, through obedience to his word and holy encounters with the spirit of God. This fear that we're talking about, the fear of the Lord, is not a fear. Um, and this, this is probably covered in some of the other sermons, but it's not, a, it's not, it's not being afraid of God. It's not, it's not running from God. It's not being terrified of God. It's not this idea that, that, that oh, oh, man, I did this. God's going to strike me down now. And that's real for some people. Because I'll tell you what, that was a fear I had growing up as a Christian. That was, that was exactly how I feared God. I didn't know any other type of fear for, for God. Because I grew up in a, in, a, in, a, in a culture where it's very legalistic, very critical, very harsh, judgmental, very little grace, very little mercy. I didn't even understand those terms. I remember being in high school, and uh, I fell into the, to the, to the trap of, of sexual sin. And... Um, once that happened, boy, that was hard not to, not to do it. And I remember being in a relationship, fell into sin, and I was driving home, and I was petrified. I was literally in my car crying because I thought any minute I'm going to get T-boned, and I'm going to die and go to hell. That's how I felt. And I would, I, would, I would beat myself up over and over and over again because I would, I would, I would, I would mess up and go three months and, 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 and be good and, and then fall. I didn't have the tools back then. I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the community. Surround, I, didn't, I didn't have the accountability. But I would mess up. And every time I would mess up, I would, I would just punish myself. Because I felt like that's what God was trying to do. He was trying to punish me. But then I, was, I would punish other people. As a leader in the church, as a youth pastor, that's how I was treating people. There's no grace. 
I was, I was punishing people. But then, what's so fascinating is that one of my most eye-opening moments to the fear of God hit me probably about, I don't know, seven years ago. And I was in a dark time, dark place in my life. A lot of things went wrong. And I made a decision in sin. I had, I had left the, the brook at the time, and I, I made a decision that I regretted, that I still regret to this day. I dealt with a lot of shame because of this thing, a lot of it. Something that I thought I would never do, but I did it. And I remember that brought me to my breaking point. I was desperate, I was desperate to get back to God at that point. Because I, was, I, I, I didn't, I didn't want to live anymore. I was, I, was gain, I, was, I was growing in hopelessness. I was thinking about suicide every day. It was, it was just anxiety. My depression was, it was, off, it was, it was just crazy, just crazy. I wasn't sleeping. I was crying every night. It was just out of this world. My hormones were all over the place. I was just jacked up. I was jacked up. And I remember calling the pastor, Pastor Munji at the time, and I came back to the church. And a few weeks in, I was sitting in the back row, and this was when we were at eight, off of 826, and I was sitting in the back row. And I remember during worship seeing myself, my sin, my wickedness, all the things that I had done these, this past year, right? And in that moment, it was like the Spirit of God just brought this sense of like, I still love you. I'm here. Like, you've been forgiven. You know what I mean? Like, this, this sense of, of, of compassion and love that didn't make sense to me. It didn't make any sense to me. And it was at that moment that I began to understand the fear of God. Let me show you guys in Scripture what I mean. Look at Psalm 130, verse 4. Out of the depths I call you Yahweh. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Yahweh, if you considered sins, Lord, who could stand? But you, with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. I wait for Yahweh, I wait, and I put my hope in his word. Man, God desires to forgive us so that we could be in awe of him, so that God could be revered, so that we could see his love, his immense majesty, his compassion, his great power. He would bring us to the point where we have these encounters where we're like, it doesn't make sense. We don't see this in the world. There's no way for the enemy to deceive you because he can't fake that part. The wisdom that Satan offers doesn't come with that type of love, compassion, and forgiveness, and mercy. It doesn't exist in this world. So when your eyes are fixated on the Lord 
and you've experienced that type of fear, your decisions are, it's, it's easy to look to God to be guided in this world. Let's look at another encounter with the Lord. We have Abraham and his obedience to God, his obedience to God's word. We all know this story, Genesis 22, 10 through 12. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. This is a question that we all need to ask ourselves regarding everything we hold dear in our lives. Do we feel inseparable from the things God has given us? Do we feel inseparable from, this is a hard question to ask guys, because because you don't, because it's hard to be honest when we ask this type of question. I'll give you, I love to give examples, and I'm a very transparent person. But, it, but, but, man, there's just an example that just came to me that that man, this was me. This was me. In my first marriage, I didn't realize at the time, but I idolized this idea of marriage. I was a pastor. People looked up to me. And, and all, what, what I cared about most was like the image. I needed people to see me a certain way. And, and when things started to go south in that relationship, things that I knew I had, I, man, I had no control over. I started to pray. I would say, God, you could take, literally, just show you how, it, I just didn't know better. But I would say, God, you could take anything from me. Take anything from me, don't take my wife. I had no idea. I had no idea the disposition of my heart at that time. I didn't even realize it. But I said, God, you could take anything from me, but don't take my wife. I didn't fear God. I feared my reputation. I feared the way people looked at me and what they saw when they saw me in my relationship and my daughter. I wanted to be that perfect family. I wanted to be that person that everybody looked up to. I wanted to look good. I wanted to feel good. When I spoke, I wanted people to listen. I wanted them to hear. I was, bro, I was wicked, man. I was wicked. I didn't realize how entrenched I was in the wisdom of this world while pastoring, while leading people. And God did a work. Thank God, right? Thank God for his redeeming love. Thank God that he will step in the midst of our tra- the, the trajectory of, of, of us following the wisdom of the world 
and, and, and rip us right off that track at all costs. Thank God, because God knows I was stubborn. I was stubborn. If you knew me back then and you think I'm stubborn now, <laughs> Lord, yeah, Mike could tell you, I was a, it was not good. It was not good. So God allowed me many times to run my head right into the wall. Until I realized that I belong to him. That I belong to him. And there's no one or nothing that's going to separate me from his love. Thank God for that. God is good, man. The fear of God teaches us that the one who gives is greater than the gift itself. So obedience becomes possible. To say that obedience is easy is, a, is not being honest. Obedience is not easy in this world. I have one son. One. And it's something that, I, that in my heart of hearts I desired. And look at the position that Abraham was put in by God. I want you to give me your only son. And God, and Abraham feared God enough to say yes, Lord, to that. His obedience. God saw that the giver is greater than the gift. I'm sorry, Abraham saw. I just said God saw. To the last point. Sorry, I'm not done with this point yet. Let's look at Job 42. There are others encounters with God where he meets us to correct us. It's in love, but he meets us to correct us. And I think this is also a beautiful example of how our fear for the Lord is not something that is supposed to stay stagnant or at any particular level, but our fear for the Lord continues to grow. We know that Job is a man that feared God. We know that. We know that by his, the way that he lived his life. God's word said that he was blameless among all men, that he was righteous. He wasn't aware, though, that God had a conversation with Satan because Satan believed that Job's lifestyle and allegiance to God was only because of the ways in which God blessed Job. So God said, it's not the case, but we're going to test Job. He decided to test Job. And he allowed the enemy to destroy everything that Job had. From his family, his children, his wife, his cattle, his home, everything he had built, gone. Then he began to, to strike his body with sickness and ailments and, 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 and these posturous things all over his body. Just, I'm sure he was agonizing pain. And in the beginning, Job was remaining faithful to God. But it got to a point where things just started to not make sense to Job. His friends started to tell him, 
There is absolutely no way that you're going through what you're going through and you did not do something heinous against the Lord. There's no way. And eventually, Job began to ignorantly question God's justness, question God's character, because how could you allow something like this to happen if, if, if I've done nothing wrong and I don't even know? So God in his love, he meets with Job and he begins to lay out what I would consider, according to God's wisdom, I would consider some basic things that God has done. They're not basic to us, but God could have went a whole lot deeper if he wanted to. So he starts to talk about his creation and, 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 and you know, ask Job, how did I do this? Or explain this over here to me. Explain all these different things regarding my creation. And of course, there's nothing that Job could say. But his response to me highlights a beautiful picture of what it looks like to fear God. Job 42, one through six, then Job replied to the Lord, and I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things, listen to this guys, Job responds and says, surely I spoke about things I did not understand. Things too wondrous for me to know. There are often times, especially Christians, there are often times we get ourselves into trouble because we think we're supposed to understand everything. We think we're supposed to have an answer to everything. And we will not. We won't. We have everything we need this side of heaven. But we're not always going to have the answers. But then when we start to walk around and act like we have all the answers, that's where sin begins to creep into our hearts. And we begin to operate with a different type of wisdom, not a wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord. Let me continue to read. I had heard reports about you. I love this. I had heard reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words, and I am sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. See, there's a difference. There's a difference between reading God's word and then having an encounter with God. There's a difference. And if we're reading God's word just to read God's word, if we're reading God's word just to be able to have a good conversation with somebody else, if we're reading God's word just to be able to articulate it to people, to be able to be a good debater, if we're not reading God's word to seek his face, to know him more intimately, to walk with him, to bring him into our household, into our marriage, into our relationships, to carry him out into our communities with our friends and our conversations, There's a difference when we have an encounter with God, guys. 
it brings about this, 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 this immense level of humility. We're slow to speak at that point. Because we become aware. We become aware of self. In relation to who God is and his greatness. That is something we should remind ourselves on the daily, if not more than that. Remind yourself of who you are in relation to the God of the universe. Trust me, you will not be so quick to make decisions. Because you will live, walk, and breathe with a spirit of humility. You will think twice about what you think you know. The fear of God tells us and shows us everything we need to know this side of heaven. In spite of our earthly circumstances, we see this here with Job. At that point when, when, when he had that encounter with God, his ailments, man, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Because he saw the grandness of God, his perfection is beyond my comprehension. God, I spoke of things too wondrous for me to know. This is the type of fear we need, guys. I heard this minister say the other day, I was listening to a sermon, I can't remember his name, nor could he remember what minister shared this with him, and so, so it's anonymous. <laughs> but I'm going to share it anyways, because I think it's a good point. He said that there are two, two types of fear. There's a fear that God will hurt us, and there's a fear that we will hurt God. I love that. I love that. Because we're meant to walk as children of God in the fear that we don't want to hurt our Father. I don't want to displease you, God. I want to please you. And that's why Job was apologetic. That's why he said sorry for the words that I used so ignorantly because I didn't know. I'm sorry. Now, this is just a little nugget that I wanted to throw in here because I read it. Um, it's out of Tim Keller's book, it's Every, every uh, Good Endeavor. I'm going to read this as we transition to the last point. It says, The Spirit does not make us wise in some magical kind of way, giving us little nudges and insider tips to help us always choose the best stock to invest in. Rather, the Spirit, no, rather, He makes Jesus Christ a living, bright reality transforming our character, giving us new inner poise, clarity, humility, boldness, contentment, and courage. All of this leads to increasing wisdom as the years go by and to better and better professional and personal decisions. When Christ is put in front of us as a reality, a being that is living, that is breathing, that we see the character and the way in which he lives, the more that we are, in, are, are confronted with Christ, with Jesus, the person of Christ, the more that we are able to take on those characteristics as time goes by, as we go through these different situations, these circumstances, wisdom is not going to come on to us like this, a blink of an eye. God, give me wisdom. Lord, please give me wisdom because your word says that we, that we need it. And we read some scriptures and all, we get this, this insight and then all of a sudden we're wise. It takes time. That's why Tim Keller specifies, as the years go by, I think that's such a pertinent point because for me being super 
you know, impulsive about life and, and, and grabbing life by the horns and trying to make things happen like overnight, I needed to understand that you need to slow down, be patient. God has a plan for you and is working with you and, he's, and that wisdom isn't come, but it's gonna take time because it comes through experiences and encounters with Christ and obedience to his word. Point three, um, dealing with the second half of, of the verse, fools despise wisdom and discipline. Point three, the fear of the Lord is cultivated through discipline. Foolish behavior avoids discipline and as a result rejects wisdom. The rejection of wisdom is to suffer in vain. Let's talk about a fool for a little bit. Proverbs 18.2, a fool does not delight in understanding but only wants to show off his opinions. If you get into conversations with a fool, you'll notice that no matter what truth you give that individual or fact you lay out to that person, it does not matter. What's in their head and in their mind is true. And oftentimes it's an opinion, but it's true. In Proverbs 27, 22, though you grind a fool in a mortar with pestle along with grain, you will not separate his foolishness. In other words, you cannot take the foolish out of a fool. Now, just take heed, what this does to Christians, we read something like this and we say, well, that's, that's not me, clearly. Because this sounds like it's talking about someone that doesn't belong to the Lord. But just because you are not a fool that is separated from God or does not belong to God, it does not mean you cannot act like a fool as a Christian. It does not mean that you don't have foolish tendencies linger around in certain areas of your life. So to overlook it is foolish, guys. Believe me, we all have that. We all have foolish tendencies in our lives that God is trying to deal with. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. This is one, this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Paul says, Now everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, if you read, and I suggest you read the previous scriptures because it's paramount when it comes to um, this, this, this verse, we know that the race that, that Paul is talking about is a race we are on as Christians to win souls, to advance the gospel. Paul says, if, if I could just reach one, and he talks about the different ways that he is willing to, without compromise, conform to meet those individuals that are lost where they are. If I need to become poor to meet this person in poverty, I will do so. If I need to change the way I'm communicating in order to reach this individual from over here, I will do so. But Paul highlights here in 27, instead I discipline my body and bring it under strict control. There's a point that I think is significant here. The fact that Paul acknowledges the need for discipline of this physical body shows that he is hyper aware of the world that he lives in. 
You know the scripture that talks, says that I am in this world, we are in this world, but we're not of this world? We often focus on we're not of this world. We focus on that part. And overlook the fact that we're in this world. Guys, there are implications to living in this world. In other words, if you live a life in this world and you think you can live this life without discipline, you're fooled because of the implications of this broken world and this broken vessel. We need discipline. And I'm not just talking about, I'm not just, because you guys know I'm in, in fitness and all that. Also. I'm not just talking about going to the gym or stuff like that. I'm talking about discipline of this fleshly body, the flesh, our desires, what we desire. It's necessary in order for us to run the race well. He highlights that we aren't meant to run this race just to say we ran it. We're running this race for an unperishable prize. And even the athletes know, even the athletes know that are just running for, for uh, the reef on their head or the gold medal, even they know that they must discipline their bodies. They must have discipline in everything that they do. When it comes to their sleep, when it comes to what they eat, when it comes to, 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 to the, 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 the right amount of training, they're looking at everything because they understand that there's implications to the things that I do that will ultimately hinder my ability to run this race. Guys, that's wisdom. As Christians, we need to have that understanding. Everything you do, there are implications that affect our ability to portray the beauty and magnificence of Christ here in this world. Not just here on Sunday. It's not enough just to read your word. It's not enough just to pray. Wisdom is execution, the application of God's word that starts at home. It starts at home. If you're married, you have a huge responsibility, huge. To show your spouse what it looks like to live a life unto God, to be submissive to his wisdom and not the wisdom that is offered in this world. Because believe me, you, it becomes very clear, and I'm speaking for myself, my wife will tell you, it becomes very clear when a husband is pulling off of the wisdom of the world versus taking the wisdom that God offers. It becomes very clear. And husbands, there are implications to that because we have a responsibility to lead our wives well. It takes discipline to control the tongue and turn away from what is evil. I'm going to read a scripture that makes this clear and plain because one of the ways in which we grow in our fear from God, for God is to guard our tongues. And we're in, when we're enticed by the enemy to turn away. Guys, that, that requires discipline. Look at Psalm 34, 11, and I'm coming to a close. It says, come children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who delights in life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. 
This sounds like it's common sense, but it's not always as easy as it sounds. Discipline is a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing. And we are surrounded by temptations and everybody has different temptations. Everyone has different temptations. But we're all being met with our temptations. And the scripture is saying that if we want to grow in our fear from the Lord, if we want to, to, to learn the fear of God, then we need to control our tongues and refrain from evil. Turn away from it at all costs. Jonathan hit on this last Sunday. Man, if your eyes causing you to stumble, God is saying, pluck that thing out. Because it's that pertinent. The end of um, 1 Peter 1 through 14, or 114 says, you are to conduct yourselves in the fear during the time of your temporary residence. This side of heaven, living on this earth, it is paramount. It is important that we live every day of our lives in the fear of the Lord. And we made these points clear earlier on. Every day of our lives, it is important that we conduct ourselves, this side of heaven, under the fear of the Lord. This is another way of saying that we are to set our eyes on Christ, this side of heaven. This requires discipline of the flesh, which will ultimately lead to a greater insight to God's wisdom. But it all begins with the fear of God. Amen? Amen. Let me close in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your rich word, your counsel. I thank you, God, that you meet us where we are. And at the moments that you meet us, Father, we grow in our understanding of who you are, which increases the fear that we have for you, opening up the gateways of knowledge, your knowledge, your wisdom. guiding us down this challenging, complex world and protecting us from being thwarted off the path of righteousness. As Satan approaches us with these schemes, God, would you, man, remind us of your greatness. Would you remind us of your, your immense love, your power, your compassion, the things that we cannot find in the world. Remind us that you are the giver of good things, God. But we should never place those good things above you. Lord, we thank you and we love you. And we ask that you would be with us throughout our week, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.